Before you listen to this episode, just a quick word about PTO's unexpected new followers. So last week I was alerted to the fact that PTO's listener rating on Spotify was suddenly a mere 1.5 stars out of 5. Now it's been a while since I checked, but my recollection was that the rating used to be over 4.5 stars. And as well as the rating now being dramatically lower, I also saw that the show now has hundreds of more ratings than it did just a couple of months back. Now there's no way of knowing for certain, but this looks very much like a coordinated attempt to game the algorithms to make it less likely that PTO will show up in the Spotify search engine or to be recommended to listeners of other podcasts by the platform. Incidentally, the same thing has happened to at least two other left podcasts, and possibly more. Owen Jones's show and Michael Walker's Crash Course have experienced the same thing. And perhaps not coincidentally, in all three cases, this has occurred while all three of us have been doing lots of interviews relating to Israel's genocidal attack on Gaza. So I'm asking you today if you would do me a huge favour and help to make the show easier for listeners to find by rating the show on Spotify. You can find a link to the Spotify page in the description of today's episode or by searching for Politics Theory Other on Spotify. Importantly, please be sure to rate the public version, not the patrons-only stream, which is currently unaffected. Now, if you don't ordinarily listen to the show on Spotify, you may be asked to listen to some episodes first. But all you need to do in that case is to click on a couple of episodes and fast-forward right to the end of each, and then you'll be able to rate the show. And on the Spotify app, you can give your rating by clicking on the three small dots next to the gear wheel symbol on the PTO Spotify page. As I say, it would be very much appreciated if you would give PTO a positive rating. And in doing so, you can experience the satisfaction of knowing that you're helping to ensure that the efforts of the charming people who went to the trouble of downvoting this show will have been entirely wasted. So please do go to Spotify before you listen to the rest of the episode in order to give PTO your rating. Thank you for your help and thanks for listening. I find the figure of the doppelganger really interesting as a sort of literary device because Freud wrote that the doppelganger stands in for the fact that we all contain multitudes, like we are capable of being different types of people in this world depending on the political circumstances, depending on the political kind of incentives and structures that exist in any given moment. Hello and welcome to another episode of Politics Theory Other. My name is Alex Doherty and my guest today is Naomi Klein. We talked about Naomi's new book, Doppelganger, A Trip into the Mirror World. The book is extremely wide-ranging and well worth getting a copy of, but in the first part of our conversation, we focused in on how and why, at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, parts of the anti-vaccine movement started to adopt the garb and the language of participants in struggles against racism and the historic crimes of settler colonialism. In the second part, we talked about Israel and Palestine and how the notion of doppelganger politics can be applied to the way Israel views the Palestinians. We also talked about how European fascism of the 20th century is typically portrayed as being the diametric opposite of liberal democracy, in spite of the extent to which Nazism took direct inspiration from both European colonial practices and racial segregation in the United States. We also talked about the way in which the Holocaust is depicted and why, as Naomi contends, the history of the Holocaust is typically taught in a way that neither encourages solidarity with victims of other genocides 
nor invites people to truly grieve the dead. At the start of our conversation, Naomi mentions a recent PTO episode on settler colonialism. In case you missed it, that's the episode with Cy Englert, and you can find a link to that episode in the description of today's show. Today's episode is brought to you by PTO's supporters on Patreon, and also by Verso Books, who have lots of great left-wing titles perfect for PTO listeners. One you might like to check out is The Dreadful History and Judgment of God on Thomas Munzer by Andrew Drummond. The princes are nothing but tyrants who flay the people. They fritter away our blood and sweat on their pomp and whoring and knavery. These were the words of Thomas Munzer, radical preacher and revolutionary, at the head of a peasant rebellion in the year 1525. How did Munzer, the son of a coinmaker from central Germany, rise in just a few short years to become one of the most feared revolutionaries in early modern Europe? The Dreadful History and Judgment of God on Thomas Munzer, a new book out from Verso, charts the life and times of the man Martin Luther denounced as a ravening wolf and a false prophet. This brilliant work of historical excavation brings Thomas Munzer and his world vividly to life. The Dreadful History and Judgment of God on Thomas Munzer, The Life and Times of an Early German Revolutionary by Andrew Drummond, is out now from Verso Books. And now to today's interview. Naomi Klein is the author of No Logo, The Shock Doctrine, The Rise of Disaster Capitalism, and This Changes Everything, Capitalism versus the Climate. Her most recent book and the topic of our conversation is Doppelganger, A Trip into the Mirror World. So there's such a lot in the book that we could talk about, but when we were arranging this interview, you suggested that we might want to focus on the question of settler colonialism. And of course, we have a particularly striking instance of the horrors of settler colonialism right now with Israel's devastating genocidal assault on Gaza's population, which at the time of recording is still ongoing in spite of increasing talk about a possible ceasefire. We'll come on to Israel and also the history of, of Zionism and anti-Semitism, which you also discuss at length in the book. But first, I wanted to ask you about the section on the Canadian truck convoy protests, that series of blockades against COVID-19 vaccine mandates and other COVID-related restrictions that occurred in Canada in early 2022, and which you contrast with a rather less well-known convoy protest that took place the year before and which was in response to the revelations surrounding the Canadian Indian residential school system, which was founded in the late 19th century and which in the book you describe as being, quote, part of an official state policy to actively replace Indigenous nations, languages and cultures with English and French-speaking Christian culture. Can you talk a bit about the two different convoy movements and how the participants in the anti-vaccine mandate convoy seemed to unconsciously ape and almost parody the protests against the residential school system and its legacy, uh, something which very much ties in with the book's broader theme of the doppelganger? Yeah, sure. Well, it's it's great to be with you. And I think I, I probably suggested that focus because I had just listened to an episode, a really great episode of, of the podcast on settler colonialism. So the sub-chapter uh, title is, is, as you said, A Tale of Two Truck Convoys. And one of them is the more famous one that, that made international headlines when our capital city of Ottawa was taken over for three weeks by these huge 18-wheeler trucks and various other supporters. Um, there were snowball fights and hot tubs and 
Nazi flags and people wearing yellow stars saying that they were the new Jews like uh, before the Holocaust. And that was because they were being uh, asked to participate in various kinds of, of COVID health mandates, right? So if, if, we, if we cast our minds back to those, those, those COVID winters, there was a huge controversy around vaccine mandates and then vaccine verification apps. And there was a lot of sort of loose historical analogies being made with the Nazis related to them. But then there were also just actual Nazis, it seemed, at, at, the, at that trucker convoy. And so in the book, I, I talk about a lesser known trucker-led political action that took place in, in 2001 in the aftermath of the confirmation of unmarked graves at the site of the, a, a former so-called residential school in Kamloops, which is in British Columbia, in the interior of British Columbia. And a group of, of truckers decided to organize a convoy that was called the We Stand in Solidarity Convoy, where hundreds of vehicles drove past the site of the former residential school and expressed solidarity in various ways, uh, left gifts, you know, had, had showed banners that said every child matters. It was organized by a, a trucker named Mike Otto, who said he was just sort of overwhelmed by what his indigenous neighbors were going through and felt strongly that this should not just be a burden that they carry alone as they demanded justice from the Canadian government and various forms of, of reparations. And so it was just, it was, it was a, quite a moving gesture of, of solidarity uh, for, for a lot of people there. You could tell in the footage from it that, you know, people, there was a lot of, there were a lot of tears and raised fists. And then just a few months later, there was this other trucker convoy that appropriated a lot of the imagery from the movement fighting for justice for Indigenous people in Canada, for instance, there were like t-shirts around calling the vaccines Canada's second genocide. And there were banners that used, appropriated the slogans, every child matters, but they were now referring to vaccines that were supposedly endangering young people. And then there were teepees and peace pipes. And, you know, there were actually some Indigenous people who participated in the trucker convoy in Ottawa. So things got confusing. But then there were denunciations from Indigenous leaders about these appropriations that were really seen as very insulting and desecrations. So the whole thing was turned into something sort of absurdist, I would say. That was quite common to the kind of mimicry and appropriation that we saw during COVID of of not just the yellow stars, but even a, this, like the slogan, I can't breathe from the Black Lives Matter uh, racial justice uprisings was used by anti-mask activists to say like, I can't breathe because I'm wearing a mask. So one of the things that I try to do in Doppelganger is understand what the relationship is between the reckonings uh, and unveilings that have taken place during these you know key years that I'm tracking around sort of open wounds and open graves uh, on which our settler colonial nation states are built and and that sort of revelations of of these recent years and these confrontations and this sort of inability not to see and then these other movements that simultaneously appropriate slogans iconography claims of victimization 
while also in many cases being part of movements to suppress that history, right, and deny that history that is being, that real history that is being unveiled. So some of the same people who would say, who would appropriate the slogan like, I can't breathe to talk about masks, would be part of going to a school board meeting and demanding that books about racial justice and about the reality of slavery in the United States be taken out of school libraries because they're too upsetting to white students, for instance. So yeah, that, that's what I was sort of trying to, to, to capture with, with this sort of the tale of two trucker convoys. But I also pointed out this sort of uncomfortable tension that some people participated in both trucker convoys, like some people participated in the We Stand in Solidarity protest and also in the larger anti-COVID health measures trucker convoy that took place, I believe it was eight months later. So, you know, this is why I find the figure of the doppelganger really interesting as a sort of literary device, because, you know, Freud wrote that the doppelganger stands in for the fact that we all contain multitudes. Like they're, they're, we're aware of the fact that, that there are multiple lives that we might have led, right? That, that, that our lives are the result of a series of choices, some of which we made ourselves, some of which were imposed on us by others, many of which are just accidents of birth. And so the idea that there's another you out there walking around who looks exactly like you, who for all intents and purposes is perceived as you by the outside world well, Freud argued that that stands in for this, in for this uncomfortable knowledge that we all hold, that the life that we have is not the only life that we could have had. And, you know, I think the fact that, you know, the same trucker could have gone to both of those convoys and felt very differently, you know, in a span of eight months, stands in for the fact that we are capable of being different types of people in this world, depending on the political circumstances, depending on the political kind of incentives and structures that exist in any given moment, if that makes sense. And that appropriation of the the first convoy movement regarding the residential schools by the anti-vaccine mandate convoy, to what extent do you think that was, was, was conscious? Oh, I don't think really any of this is conscious. I think there's a a, a feeling of losing one's story and one's place for various reasons. Um, you know, some of it is is economic precarity. Some of it is the sort of being in a kind of unrecognizable world, which I, I think many of us felt during COVID. I think climate change introduces a kind of uncanniness to the natural world. But I also think that these racial justice reckonings, whether it was a Black Lives Matter uprising in 2020 or whether it was in Canada, the confirmation of, and I say confirmation, not revelation about these unmarked graves because Indigenous people had been saying that they were there for a very long time and demanding investigations that did not happen from the federal government. And this was one of the demands of the of a Truth and Reconciliation Commission that came out of a court case about residential school about residential schools uh, and, and, and by residential school survivors. So this is part of a very long process. But when the presence of the graves was confirmed, it was like it was no longer possible to deny this reality, although people are now denying it. And 
There was a canceling of our national holiday, uh, or effective canceling of our national holiday, Canada Day, that July. So that's, you know, that's the equivalent of our 4th of July. And instead of Canadian flags, there were, um, there was just like where I live, like a sea of orange shirts, which is the symbol of the residential school survivor movement um, and the Every Child Matters movement. And our prime minister, Justin Trudeau, called on the country to have a day of reflection rather than celebration. And several cities actually canceled Canada Day, like Victoria, the capital of British Columbia. So then the trucker convoy happens a few months later, and it's just a sea of Canadian flags. And, you know, as a a Tory MP described it as Canada Day times a thousand. And so I think that's revealing in the sense that I don't think it's a conscious reaction to the revelations about the graves, but I think that it is a insistence on a right to one's national mythologies, right? Sort of like we demand our fairy tales back. We want to feel good about being Canadian. We don't want these uncomfortable feelings that 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 we were confronted with. But at the same time, appropriating much of the slogan, the slogans and iconography. So a strange a, a strange mix, but no, I wouldn't say it's a conscious, we want to, we are reacting to this. Um, I think it's a subconscious, this is too painful, this is too uncomfortable, and and a sort of a resurgent, simple, nostalgic nationalism. And I think we see that in lots of different contexts. Going back to the anti-vaccine mandate, truck convoy for a moment. So a theme that runs through the book is that although it's perhaps understandable to respond to much of what the anti-vax conspiracy crowd was saying and doing with derision or or, or anger, at the same time, as you point out, they were often feeding off of uh, somewhat legitimate grievances and, and interpretations of the world around them that had at least some truth to them. For instance, you talk about how precarious small business owners were hit harder than big business during lockdown. And you describe how legitimate fears about the extent to which we are all surveilled by the tech platforms or by governments serve to super boost the conspiracy theories around vaccine passports and the idea that COVID-19 was this giant conspiracy to bring in fascism by the back door and, and by way of this state of exception. Can you expand on that point a little bit and, and say something on why it would be a mistake for people on the left to think that we didn't make serious mistakes in how we analysed and responded to the pandemic and the situation of lockdown, and that our failings provided an opportunity that the conspiracy theorists and the, and the far right could readily exploit? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I should be clear, you know, I use, the, I use the figure of the doppelganger in lots of ways in the book, um, you're not... And... And, and and use it as a as a opportunity and an excuse to do a cultural deep dive into the very very rich literature of doppelgangers you know and in back to sort of ancient mythology but also dostoevsky's the double and you know doubles in film and one thing that is very clear is that doppelgangers are mirrors <laughs> you know they're not it's you, you can't you can't do a doppelganger deep dive and just look at your double. Your double is holding up a mirror to look at yourselves. And and ultimately, I think this sort of new formulation of the right, and I guess we can put new in air quotes, but I do think that there are new things going on on the right that we need to be aware of on the left, is 
you know, one way to understand it is that, you know, and here I'm thinking about figures like Steve Bannon and, and Giorgio Malone in Italy, to an extent Marine Le Pen, what we're seeing is a kind of twisted, warped doppelganger of parts of the left. And here I'm not saying this is horseshoe theory in the sense of like, we are them, but I'm saying that, that the new far-right politics is a mix and match, as fascist politics always is, of elements of the left, right, of elements of a you know, critique of elite power, critique of the banks, of financialization, and then it's a pivot, right? It's a, it's, it's, it's a, it's a bait and switch, right? Because it, it taps into that anger and then pivots it over to, actually, it's really all about, about attacking immigrants or it's a Jewish conspiracy. And so, so, you know, we see this with Trump. We see this with, with, with lots of these kind of new right figures. But that should get the left's attention, right? I mean, it should get the left's attention and because that move is really only possible if some of these issues are not being sufficiently spoken to by the left or effectively spoken to by the left. And so, you know, these are opportunists who see that that potent political issues are being left unattended. And then they are able to do a mix and match between traditionally left issues and sort of far-right reactionary issues is, is the way I would read it. So I think that that was true during COVID, that there were a lot of ways that the liberal left, and even parts, some parts of this, sort of what I would describe as the actual left, became very, re- like, I would say there was, a, there was a first phase where we heard deeper critiques from, from the left, like, why should we patent these vaccines in the first place, right? You know, why aren't we fighting against vaccine apartheid globally? And there's a history of that in the ultra-globalization movement and taking on the WTO intellectual property, uh, the TRIPS agreement, and, and you know, dating back to, to, the, to the apartheid around HIV, AIDS, you know, medications, right? And, and fighting the, the, the ways in which th- that became, uh, you know, a global, global apartheid system. And so some of that kind of revived in the early days of COVID, and there was a, sort of a feeling like this might really be an important fight for the left. But it's sort of when the right appropriated the anti-vaccine stance and and mix and made, turned it into like they want to Bill Gates wants to inject trackers into your into your body via vaccines I think a lot of people were very confused like to see the right do this weird sort of doppelganger of the left and suddenly they're talking about the Davos elite and the great reset and it's like well what is our role in that right what I observed is that a lot of people kind of went silent and just basically said you know roll up your sleeve and get your shot and that was the left position you know and and the left position was a sort of a a maximalist obedience to the health mandates and not enough of a more expansive critique and, and set of demands around, you know, what, what would it mean to reinvent the public sphere so that our public spaces were healthier and safer for all? You know, we can look back to the Great Depression and, you know, where, where there were also, they were also dealing with TB and, you know, there were, there were so many more expansive demands coming from labor, you know, huge employment programs for teachers and, and, and nursing aides and big expansions in public health. And so, you know, a COVID equivalent might have been, you know, instead of just saying we should close the schools, you know, if COVID rates are high, which we did need to do, 
we could have been fighting for, you know, many more teachers and teachers aid, outdoor education, smaller classrooms. I mean, it, you know, and of course the right to good indoor air, you know, air filters. I mean, that's just a start. But the, the agenda of the, certainly the liberal left during COVID was just at a certain point just became follow the health mandates, despite the fact that they were extremely individualistic. There were legitimate critiques about COVID profiteering, about double standards for big corporations able to stay open, you know, where I live in Canada, like the big ski resorts, you know, who are very good at political lobbying, they were able to stay open, but like a small gym had to close, for instance, right? So there was uh, apparently Whistler was a big COVID hotspot. They were able to stay open. But, you know, a lot of these of, of these sort of small owner operators felt rightfully discriminated against, right? And so the trucker convoy was presented in the sort of Tucker Carlson world as this working class uprising. That is not correct. I mean, they were it was overwhelmingly kind of small business owners. And these truckers are are owner operators, right? They're, they are small business owners. But I don't, you know, I don't think we should belittle the fact that they had, they, that they were experiencing double standards. And also, I think what we were seeing was just, you know, these are people who believed the promise of the neoliberal age, which was, you know, that their job was to play by the rules and take care of themselves and their families. And they, you know, didn't owe much to anyone else, you know, I mean, Thatcher said there's no such thing as a society and, you know, there's just individuals and and families. And they are people who took that, you know, took that at face value. And then suddenly they were being asked to care about all kinds of other people. And, you know, I don't think it's surprising that a significant segment of our population just said, well, this was not the deal. Like the deal was that we take care of ourselves and our families. And now you're trying to make us do all these other things. And you're, and you're asking us to take on all these other costs. And, you know, that's, that, that's not, that's not the arrangement of, of the neoliberal age. So of course there was a backlash, but you know, the, the question around, around, you know, what this says about the left. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's possible that this would not have been as much of a kind of gift to the right as it has been, if there had been a more robust left that was critical of of these health standards, while also saying, yeah, get your vaccine, you know, wear a mask when appropriate. Do you think the left was in a somewhat invidious position because we couldn't take a very clear position one way or the other? You know, there's something sort of satisfying about saying, you know, lockdowns are evil or, you know, everyone, you know, must abide by the rules or, or, or so on, you know, whichever side you, you take. Whereas we were in this position of being sort of critically supportive of the vaccine rollout and critically supportive of lockdown in certain circumstances. And, you know, I recall a few months ago doing an episode on the sort of COVID critical post left with Richard Seymour. And, you know, I felt Richard gave a sort of, you know, fairly kind of like nuanced perspective, which, which was indeed uh, critical of much of the policy of the way in which the vaccines and the lockdown were implemented while, while still, you know, seeing the, the need for it. And, you know, a lot of the responses from some of the people in, in, in the, you know, so-called post left just seemed to be, you know, Richard's just saying lockdowns are great and that's what they heard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't think we were in a good position and I think the biggest problem that we had as the left is it's hard to organize when we can't get together. And a lot of organizations were falling apart in this period. That's another sort of data point that we should consider. There was there was a huge um, 
you know, I think I think Biden's election. I mean, here I'm speaking about in the North American context. I mean, there was a massive amount of organizing in the early days of COVID, early months of COVID around mutual aid that sort of rolled into a lot of election organizing that eventually resulted in Trump not being reelected. And then, you know, sort of the incredible anticlimax of ending up with Biden and realizing that a lot of the more ambitious hopes that that various movements had, you know, whether it was a climate justice movement or the Black Lives Matter movements, you know, that there was a kind of a, a wall hit. And I think that that would have been a very important time to have like big left convenings and lots of in-person strategy. And we weren't able to do it. We were in the middle of a pandemic. And so a lot of groups fell apart in this period. You know, some closed down altogether, some, you know, sort of collapsed for a while and are now coming back. But, you know, my point here is not to you know, to point fingers and say, you know, this group should have done this, we should have done this. It's, it is genuinely to kind of look in the mirror and see what we can learn going forward. Because, you know, one of the other things that that's interesting about the trucker convoy, and that was quite sort of vertiginous for me, is, you know, I've been part of protests that have tried to shut down our capital before. And I could recognize the kind of thrill of the direct action. You know, there were these moments where, the truckers would take journalists on tours of their encampment, you know, like this is our this is our group kitchen, this is the daycare, this is, you know. And it was so to me reminiscent of the kind of alter globalization years, you know, where we would have these counter summits and and sort of glimpse an alternative reality and the, their sort of pride of all of their infrastructure, their sort of activist infrastructure. It was vertiginous in the sense that it was a reminder that where was the left? Like it felt like we were a phantom of ourselves, right? And they shut down a key trade route between Canada and the U.S. And, and that's ultimately why Justin Trudeau invoked the Emergencies Act. His foreign minister said that it was because of economic disruption, which as a basis for invoking an act that strips people of key rights and allows the government to do things like seize bank accounts and so on, that is very, very disturbing. That's a very disturbing precedent for the left because, you know, if we're doing our jobs right, we are causing economic disruption, right? Any major strike, certainly a general strike, an indigenous blockade. And so... Yeah, I, th I found it distressing to see this kind of weird, tw twisted doppelganger of the left. But most importantly, I was wondering, well, what if we had shut down trade routes demanding an end to vaccine apartheid or, you know, keeping the eviction moratorium in place or canceling student debt? I mean, there are so many things that we could have used those types of militant tactics to do and didn't. So you know, politics hates a vacuum. You know, I've said this many times. And if it, you know, if it isn't filled with, you know, a hopeful transformational political project, it's going to be filled with something. And, 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 you know, right now I think it's being filled with, with hate and xenophobia. And, and that's what fascism does. On the left's relationship to small business owners, you know, the so-called petty bourgeoisie, do you think, Part of a problem that the left has is that we, we read the history of 20th century 
fascism and, and we see that because of its sense of itself as being squeezed between the labor movement and big business and with its characteristic anxiety about its own threatened immiseration, small business you know, became a core part of the coalition of interests that made European fascism possible and, and briefly hegemonic. And, and as a result, the left can therefore think that because that happened in the past, that, that's the only tendency in which that social block can go and, and, and that we don't need to be thinking about ways in which we can address some of their grievances, not necessarily to, to win them to our side, but at least to neutralise them and to prevent them on, a, on that process of radicalization that you described. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure how much of a, of a key constituency they are. I feel like the dynamic that where, where we have a little bit more control is this ability to, to sort of posture as the left, right? You know, I think that they, the reason why it was possible to misconstrue this as a working class uprising, which it really wasn't, is like, where were the unions on so much of this? You know, the labor movement is, is really coming back now, but a lot of our large unions were, you know, they weren't, they, they weren't Sean Fain wearing a, you know, eat the rich t-shirt shirt as, you know, ha, a, you know, as has happened more recently, you know, in the, in the UAW strike in the U.S., there was certainly some, some Amazon organizing, and I think that there could have been a lot more support for that kind of organizing across the broader labor movement and, and the left. But I think that, that when there isn't a clear movement that is really a radical voice for the working class, it is easier for this you know, petty bourgeoisie kind of small business owner class to, to pass for a working class movement. And no doubt have many people, you know, a significant number of people see it as such because they're, you know, they, they're, 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 there's no voice for them elsewhere. And I'm not so sure that this is the same situation in the UK. I mean, watching it from here, it seemed that there was a lot more labor organizing that was happening of, you know, frontline workers. And in the US, I would say that the, the National Nurses United did some incredible organizing during COVID for their members and the lack of you know, basic PPE, you know, having to go, nurses having to go to work in garbage bags. And, you know, so I'm not saying that there wasn't labor organizing in this period, but we can always do more. If we turn to another aspect of the book, so in the chapter titled The Nazi in the Mirror, you write about the Nazi Holocaust and the way in which Hitler and the Nazis have long been positioned as the diametric opposite of the liberal democracies, apparent proof of which is, is the latter's victory over Nazi Germany and, and the termination of the regime in 1945. But instead, you describe Hitler as a sort of doppelganger of the Western powers, and that, as, as writers such as Aimé Césaire argued, Nazi policy in, in Europe echoed and was inspired by the project of European colonialism and, and racial apartheid in, in Jim Crow America. Can you talk about that more and, and also the implications you then draw for thinking about the Holocaust and its supposedly singular and absolutely unique character? Yeah, so, I mean, the book ends in Israel-Palestine um, and specifically in Gaza and looks at Israel-Palestine as an example of what Caroline Rooney has called doppelganger politics, by which she means that you know, Israel created a doppelganger of the nationalisms in Europe that had targeted and oppressed Jews with pogroms you know, over, over centuries and, 
and that also doppelganger politics is a, is, is a politics of disavowal, of projection, of, of putting everything that you cannot see about yourself onto the other, which is what Israeli society has done to Palestinians and does all the time. And, you know, as we hear all the time, you know, every, every, every accusation is a confession. So, you know, I think that that chapter, Nazi in the Mirror, is it sort of was, was, was this, I guess, the circuitous way that I got to that chapter in terms of trying to understand how this could have happened, how it became sort of thinkable that reparations for the Holocaust could be handing the right to essentially be white in, in, in Palestine. And I mean, we can maybe step back from that and, and, and look at it. I mean, let me just put a pin in that to, to talk about, about the Nazi in the mirror chapter. So, but it is, a, it is an attempt to, to, to try to understand this, this dynamic of projection. And what I believe is that part of what we're experiencing now with these kind of wars over who, who has a right to call each other, to call somebody a Nazi, to call something fascist, to make a comparison with the Second World War, comes down to these warring versions of what fascism was in the first place. And I think that the story that I grew up with in as a Jewish person in North America, um, you know, who went, you know, I grew up in a lefty household, so I was exposed to some more progressive ideas about what what the lessons of the of the Second World War should be. But I also went to a Jewish day school and got a more conventional sort of never again that was really just never again to the Jews and never again because of Israel and never again because Jews now have a homeland and an army. And so I think that there have always been two very different ways of understanding what fascism was when it exploded in Europe in the 1930s and 40s. And one story is the dominant story that gets taught in many of our schools, and that is asserting itself with great vehemence and violence in this moment, in these you know, so-called comparison wars of like, who has a right to make the comparison with the Nazis about whether, you know, here I'm thinking about the controversy about Masha Gessen's New Yorker article where she described Gaza as a ghetto like the ghettos in Eastern Europe under the Nazis. But there are new controversies about this every day. And then the the other story is, is a story that has always been there and that is suppressed and that has been suppressed, but is reasserting itself in ways that are really destabilizing the dominant Zionist narrative. So the, the first story is, is that the Nazis were an expression of primordial Jew hatred, that the horrors were so extreme and so unprecedented in their speed and scale that it's almost sacrilegious to try to understand it in historical context. And the uh, Holocaust gets lifted out of history and anti-Semitism gets lifted out of history as a force that cannot be understood because it is so 
deeply embedded in the psyche of you know, pre-Western civilization, and therefore all you can do is put a gun to its head and force it into submission, which is essentially what the state of Israel is. The other story, the more suppressed story, is the story that Aimé César was telling that W.E.B. Du Bois told in the 1950s, that Nehru was telling back in the 1930s, that Walter Benjamin told before he died, and that is that this was a homecoming of European imperialism and colonialism, and that Hitler was a doppelganger of, of the concentration camps and death camps that nearly wiped out the Nama and Herero in what is now Namibia, that Hitler studied and learned the Western frontier myth in the Americas. He explicitly compared his treatment of the Slavs and Jews to the treatment of the so-called Indians. He said he would treat them as colonized people and give them beads and things that colonized people like. He studied U.S. race law. Um, I mean, we now know a lot about direct continuities between the Nama and Herero genocide, the race science that formed the basis of, of the Holocaust. So these are the two stories. I mean, one is lifting the Holocaust out of history, out of time, forbidding any comparisons, never again to the Jews, or this is the, the, the flip side of the civilizational project. It is a homecoming of, of these logics. Yes, every genocide is different and particular, but it is part of one long story, a long arc of fascism. And I think Alberto Toscano is as delving into this in his, in his new book, Late Fascism. And what's important about understanding this long arc of fascism that de-exceptionalizes the particular form it took in the 1930s in Italy and Germany is that it allows us to see how it stretches forward to Israel-Palestine, but also Israel-Palestine as a laboratory for an eco-fascist future, which I think is part of the reason why so much of the global South sees in Gaza a glimpse of their future. Fenced in, semi-starved. Yeah, I wrote about this in the Shock Doctrine many years ago, that Israel's much of Israel's entire economic model post-Oslo is as a laboratory, but also, you know, fortress borders and se selling its, its border technology and its, its various technologies of containment and oppression to other nations, and not just Europe and the U United States, but Modi's India and beyond. So this is, this is, you know, I think so many of the word front of the war on Gaza, whether it's settler colonialism, whether it's genocide, whether Gaza is a concentration camp or a ghetto, all of the, and, you know, and every single time Israel says, that's a blood libel, that's a blood libel. You know, one way of understanding this is we're having a war over, we're allowed, over whether we're going to tell the singular story about European fascism and the Holocaust, or whether we are going to tell a story about fascism with a much longer arc that tells us where we came from, you know, and I talk about, you know, in the book, I, I quote Raoul, uh, I, I quote Sven Lindquist's Exterminate All the Brutes and, 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 and Raoul Peck's 
multi-part documentary adaptation of that book that came out during COVID. Because, you know, as Peck says, this, you know, this is the story of the birth of the modern world, but it is also telling us where we're going if we don't get off this course. So, you know, I think that it's worth having these wars over words because really what we're having is a war over a story of, of how we got to this incredibly perilous place. So this is really, really urgent meaning-making. And I think Israel understands this very, very well. And it also understands that if, if we understand European fascism in the 1930s and 40s as a homecoming for settler colonial violent technologies and practices where Jews became the sort of indigenous other, the brutes within Europe, then the idea that passing the mantle, and this, <laughs> we can take the pin out, then passing the mantle of whiteness to Jews in Israel and calling it reparations for the Holocaust is, is a profanity, really, because it is the ultimate failure to understand what produced Nazism in the first place. And instead of reparation, you have replication. And by replication, I don't mean a replication of the Holocaust, but I do mean a replication of the underlying logics that have produced many Holocausts. You mentioned there your own experience of learning about the Holocaust at your school in, in Montreal as a child. And in the book, you write that, I'm struck that we never actually grieved nor were we invited to seize our anger and turn it into an instrument for solidarity. That point about the Holocaust not being used to build solidarity with other victims of racism and genocide, obviously, you know, you've talked about it there, it's, it, it seems clear. But, but could you say something about the question of, of grief and your argument about the way in which how you were taught about the Holocaust was not as much of an invitation to grieve as it might seem, which would seem pretty counterintuitive given the focus on the victims in, in so much of the literature and artwork and museum exhibitions on the Holocaust that, uh, that is used to educate people both within and outside Jewish communities? Well, I think it's because it was not actually about the Holocaust a lot of the time. The Holocaust was one point on the journey on the way to the redemption, and the redemption was Israel. And so that's why when confronted with the huge and incredible mass mobilizations in solidarity with Palestinian liberation and calling for a ceasefire, the response for many lawmakers is, well, clearly these people need more Holocaust education, right? And, and the idea, and we just had, had a, a, an extreme example of this where I live in British Columbia, where our minister for post-secondary education, the person in charge of all of the universities and colleges, who's a staunch Zionist, was complaining about how uneducated young people were, and they clearly need more Holocaust education because they didn't understand that they were given, and she literally said, this crappy piece of land because of the Holocaust, and, there, it ha and she went on to say that it had no culture and no economy, and there were just a couple hundred thousand people. Anyway, she was forced to resign a few days ago for, as minister because of the uproar over this. But she was articulating, I think, the way in which many of us were taught and the way in which a lot of people would like young people to be taught, right? You think about these birthright Israel trips, these free trips that Jews from North America are taken on it's a horror and redemption story, right? You go to Auschwitz, um, you sort of are 
it's designed to keep the memories as fresh and painful as possible. It's a process not of remembering, which puts the you know pieces of ourselves back together again. It's a, it is it's designed to keep the participants in these trips as frightened, angry as possible, to feel as if what happened to you know, they may be some of their ancestors. They may, they may, they may be um, people who, who they simply identify with in the, in Jews in the in the camps, as if it had happened to them. And then the trip ends, you know, in the hills around Jerusalem, and that's the that's the redemption. It's 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 A to B. I mean, that's the same thing that happens when you go to Yad Vashem. And so, I mean, I'm not saying that there isn't any grief, but it's. It's instrumentalized, I guess is what I'm saying. And it's hard to grieve when the horror is immediately pivoted to this nationalist project. So, you know, this is part of why, you know, I think it is so important to fight for the other truer story that puts the Holocaust back in history and that it's, and it, that puts the Jewish genocide in context and conversation with so many other genocides is that that is remembering, that is putting the pieces of our history back together again. Of course, it is in, everything is in history, right? There's no such thing as an event out of history. And there's a kind of a, a violence and a madness to taking a horror like that out of history and say, you're not allowed to talk about what led up to it or what happened after it. You have to just you know, freeze it in time. And you know, one of the things that I think is most interesting and hopeful about the solidarity movements and the generational shift that is taking place, including inside the Jewish community, where you have such a generational divide about Gaza and groups like, you know, I've, I've been a, a member of the advisory board for Jewish Voice for Peace now for, for 15 years. And, you know, it used to be this tiny little operation. You know, I had been saying that they had three staff people. And a friend of mine corrected me and said, I think there were only two, you know, and now there's, they're, they're a massive organization that was massive, but they have, you know, dozens of staff and are able to buy full page ads in the New York Times and mobile is, you know, uh, at this point, probably hundreds of thousands of people, you know, in, 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 in different cities, they blocked bridges. They had hundreds of people arrested in Congress, and they're you know working in these broad coalitions, and they represent this generational shift. But what's interesting is that if you talk to a lot of the young Jews who are part of this this wave of Palestine solidarity mobilization, you know this is the Black Lives Matter generation. You know this is you know in Canada these are young people who were part of blocking transit routes and trains as in solidarity with indigenous um, movements trying to stop pipelines. There was a movement called Shut Down Canada. And I talked to one of the key organizers of a group called Jews Say No to Genocide, which has been blocking, trying to block arms uh, shipments to, to Israel. And, you know, she told me that many of these activists got their training as part of the movements in solidarity with the indigenous blockades. So, they have gotten a better education than I have, than I did, right? It, which is to say, they have Orange Shirt Day. They learn about the residential schools. They have learned, you know, a, a much deeper history about Canada's entanglement with the 
the the trade and enslaved African people, although Canada likes to claim that it, it was, you know, barely involved. That is not true. So, you know, as I, I teach university students and what we want from, from our students is not that they memorize a rule, right? Don't be mean to Jews. We want them to understand a principle, right? The, princi- the principle of what a genocide is, how to oppose it, no matter who it is directed against. And I think because they have this generation has had a Holocaust education, but also has learned about other genocides, they see patterns. And when they look at Gaza, they recognize it as as genocide. And I think that their elders are absolutely freaking out by their ability to make those connections, because it means that this other suppressed story that many have been trying to tell since the 1930s and has been kept out of the history books is asserting itself. And I, you know, I think there's hope in that because that is remembering as opposed to re-traumatizing. And if there's, you know, any hope in these incredibly bleak times, I think it's in that. Are you at all concerned that the rise of anti-Semitism that we've also seen in, in, in recent years on the far right and related to conspiracy theories such as uh, QAnon and, and uh, all, the, all the stuff around George Soros and, and, and so on, that that may be one way in which Zionism in, in places like North America might be able to reconstitute itself on that basis? Or do you think that younger Jewish people, as you say, through their experiences and through learning about other acts of genocide and, and so on, are, are just not going to be prey to that kind of argument anymore? Well, to be honest with you, I think partly that depends on how seriously the left takes the fight against anti-Semitism because, you know, Israel is a machine that weaponizes trauma, Jewish trauma, right? So every time there is an outburst of of anti-Semitism, that that becomes part of the story of why Jews need a state of Israel, a fortress, ethno-state, to keep them safe, because everyone will always hate them, because Jewish hatred is a special kind of hatred, because it's outside of history. It can never be confronted. It can never be changed. It can never be lessened. All you can do is hold a gun to its head. So anti-Semitism is key uh, for the state of Israel to to defend the idea of itself as a, 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 and the argument for itself. There has always been a fight within Judaism about different possible responses to anti-Semitism. And as you know, that's one of the things I get into in the book is just the the incredibly lively drag out fights between the Jewish labor bund and the and the and the labor Zionists and the Trotskyists and and the Spartacus League and all of these different possible answers being offered by very opinionated Jewish leftists about what to do about the Jewish question, the so-called Jewish question. You know, is it assimilation? Is it, you know, a a worker's utopia, but protecting Yiddish and Jewish culture within that Jewish utopia, which was, you know, the the Bundist sort of here-ness proposition. And, you know, post-Holocaust, in the context of, of Stalin's purges, you know, Zionism, I think, does deserve to be seen as a kind of Judeo pessimism that, you know, when all of these other possible answers seem to be wiped out either through violence or through closed borders, right? I mean, the idea that, you know, there could be liberation in the Americas. Well, what happens when the boats are turned back, right? And so for a time, Zionism seemed to be the only answer left standing. It never was. You know, there were always people who kept these ideas alive. And now those ideas are reasserting themselves with more 
with more force. And so a group like JVP is an explicitly anti-Zionist group, and many of its members identify as diasporaists and are, you know, excavating the history of the Jewish labor bund and the whole theory of of here-ness. The Yiddish word is darkat, of, of, of here and fighting to make here better. But in order for that to be a viable alternative to Zionism, then Jews need to be able to be part of multiracial, multiethnic coalitions that take anti-Semitism seriously alongside anti-Palestinian racism, Islamophobia, anti-Black racism, and all the other isms, right? And when the left seems to kind of shrug off anti-Semitism as not a real issue, because there are all these like well-funded organizations that are that are fighting it and also distorting it and using it as an argument for Zionism and passing criticism of Israel off as anti-Semitism, that helps them. <laughs> That's a gift to Zionism. So, so I think it is. I think it is possible to fight the right from the left um, and including the anti-Semitism on the right, but it does mean. It does mean taking real anti-Semitism seriously as an important, you know, front of, of, of the struggle. And I think there are signs that that is happening and there are also concerns. So you wrote the book before the events of October 7th and, and Israel's subsequent response. Has anything that we've seen since led you to reassess any of your arguments regarding Israel and, and the Palestinians? Or do you feel it has really just sort of confirmed your own analysis? I'm always changing my mind, but I wouldn't say I've changed the fundamental argument that I make in the book, which is that we, that they, you know, and the book ends, you know, with a call for this solidarity across identity that I think is our only hope. And I think I believe that more strongly. I've also just spent a lot of time reading to, you know, deepen my own analysis of this other story that so many have, have tried to tell that put the Holocaust back in history, um, back into this history of genocides. I think I understand more deeply a, a factor that I didn't get into in the book, which, you know, in the, in the argument about what makes the Nazi Holocaust different than other genocides, I go through in the book the different, the different claims, right? That it was faster, um, that it was more industrialized, that Jews were, were more assimilated, you know, and then I, I, I give counter arguments to each, to each of those. And while being clear, every genocide is different. It's not about creating some big, mushy, all genocides are the same. No, of course we need historical specificities. I think that what I didn't grapple with enough in that was one of the things that was very specific about, the, and I'd be really interested to hear other examples of this that I don't, that I'm, that I'm missing is that from what I can tell, almost every other genocide of a targeted minority group or an indigenous group that was the majority, that group was never included within whiteness, was never, you know, what, what gets called assimilated is, is a kind of a elision of what that means. It, what, what it really means is that, is that many Jews thought they were white and that we were really in the club, like we were elite, at least some of us were in Europe, you know, university professors, rich people in the club, which is not to say that there wasn't any anti-Semitism, but I think that I didn't grapple enough with 
what it means to lose whiteness and the particular kind of humiliation that comes with losing something that you had and how that then gets seized upon by the Zionist project, which of course predates the Holocaust, and then casts reparations for the Holocaust as as being past the ultimate gift of whiteness, which is the white man's burden, the right to enact the ultimate expression of whiteness, which is to which is to ethnically cleanse a racialized population, that, that being Palestinians in the Nakba. So if I had a new chapter to write, it might be about that. Um, because I think that it is key to understanding what is perceived as anti-Semitism. It's not Within the Zionist narrative, anti-Semitism is anything that denies Jews the rights of whiteness, right? Not the right not to be discriminated against or to be treated equally, but the right to be white. And that means, you know, what we're seeing in Gaza. You've been listening to Politics Theory Other. If you've been enjoying the show, please consider becoming a supporter on Patreon. £5 patrons get access to PTO Extra, bonus episodes of the show, usually two per month, including listeners' questions episodes, where you can hear recent guests respond to comments and questions sent in by PTO supporters. Go to patreon.com forward slash poll theory other to sign up. The show's music and graphic design is produced by Planet B Productions. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week.